powerful. And the church today is not so much. And so these begin to be thoughts. Lord, help me then. If my theology's wrong, I'm willing to change it, God. There's nothing that's set in stone, God, that you can't chisel away at and knock down. Anything is open game, God. Change me. Renew me. Bring a right spirit in me, God. I long for what's right more than I long for anything else. More than anything else. Not to be right, but for what's right. Because most often I don't think I am right. Matter of fact, these series here has been a, a one thing or another, things that I have struggled with or have been guilty of along the way. The first one was tell no one. We discussed about how, well, that's kind of a whole big one. I don't open that can. We could be here preaching the whole same sermon again. Last week we talked about uh, tell no one is about doing things in private, trusting that God sees you. Uh, uh, last week we talked about accountability in the ministry of the prophet. You know, there's a five-fold ministry in the Bible, and prophet is one of them, but they're very rare. They're like diamonds. They just don't, they're not everywhere. Matter of fact, they're rarely in churches. If you read the Bible, you'll understand why. It says they killed them. It didn't say like the heathens killed these people because heathens don't care about prophets. The church does. Jesus looked at the Pharisees. You who, I weep for you, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. You, the church, who always kill those who come and tell you the way that is right. We talked about needing accountability in our life. T today, I'm going to talk to you about strange fire. Strange fire. Um, a few years back, I attended a youth conference designed to draw a greater portion of our state together, our youth groups together uh, uh, here in Texas. And there was going to be a few hundred youth groups, so about 1,500, 2,000 students that were going to come together and attend this thing, all right? So the venue they picked out was a large megachurch, nothing against it. It just was a gigantic building with everything state-of-the-art you can imagine in there. And as they prepared for a time of worship, they directed all of the students to download, like, like go to iTunes, download this app so that when we play worship, your phone will like turn into this like strobe light and will interact with the music. And uh, so kids instantly on their phone during the middle of worship to download this thing so they could be a part of the strobe light effect that they wanted uh, for worship. Um, the lights would slowly dim. They, they had this array of stage lights that would help uh, uh, dim everything down and create these light little patterns everywhere. And then they had this intelligent lighting is what they call it, where these things move around and it goes crazy and it has all these designs everywhere. And, uh, uh, and it's just like every time the music played, they had some kind of design or some kind of thing going on. And, and thanks to like these multiple and, and like probably about four or five fog machines, you could see every light beam in the room. Like every little piece of dust you could see. Yeah, you, know, you can do that in the light. You can see the dust and everything. Fine. You could see every single light beam in the room. There was so much fog. The music and the music equipment was the best money could buy. The quality of the sound, man, hands down, was superb. And as the music transitioned into the preaching, three cameras, they were uh, equipped with these gigantic booms. So I felt bad for everybody who sat near them because anybody... Anybody who sat near them, you had to kind of like duck your head every once in a while because the booms would travel in and out so they could get the best footage or the best picture of the preaching, right? So their booms are like traveling around over everybody's head while you're kind of sitting there, and they're trying to cover every inch of this preacher's face 
for these giant, big, gigantic screens that are on like three different locations. This huge panoramic one in the center, two big square ones on the side. And while the speaker was preaching, this is all true, right? While the speaker is preaching, you could see a, a, a Twitter feed underneath the preacher. And every kid, as they listened to the preacher, would like, if he said something they thought was like a soundbite or a quote, they would Twitter it out. And somebody apparently was putting that up on the big screen. It was kind of an attaboy to the preacher, like, you're doing a good job. And it'd be like right up underneath it. Like, it would, it, instead of the, I guess, them reminding you what he said, it was people on Twitter going crazy. And so if like they would have these intermittent Twitter feed that was going on underneath the preacher, kind of cheerleading the speaker on to know he was on track. I never seen anything like it. Uh, it was a techn technological, like, shock and awe experience that truly had me baffled. It was the first time I actually stepped back and I really took a close look at what the church was becoming. That's where we're headed. Whether you like that or not, that's where we're headed. It was a sounding alarm that I had been asleep that something's been happening in God's church and I was missing it. Something is wrong. And that it was time to wake up. If the old adage is true, what you behold, you become. We teach that in leadership. Then it's obvious what we've got our eyes on. What we have our eyes on, what has captivated our attention is the world. We've stared at it until it became the very thing we coveted. We'd hate it. But that would mean we'd have to stop being so entertained by it. For the most part, few can even tell what's actually taking place. Most would believe it's just a new song or a new style, a new method. But there isn't anything new about it. It's an old veil. A familiar covering or hiding of our deficiencies. John 15, 19 says, The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. The words of Christ have either gone overlooked or we've watered them down now to the point of no effect. Maybe we just don't understand them. Or worse, we don't like them. Because secretly, we really want both. We want to somehow live, love the world or the things of the world, and we want Jesus. That's the ugly truth. I mean, it's not so hard to believe, is it? We live in the world every day. Our eyes behold the beauty of this world every day. Is it any wonder that the sum of what the world has to offer wouldn't seep into our lives? I don't think that's a hard stretch. In his book, The Disciple-Making Pastor, Leading Others on Their Journey to Faith, Bill Hull writes, The church is to be in the world, but not of it. The church is like a boat. Listen, the boat is to be in the water, not the water in the boat. He's right. But the church has been taken on water for a long time. I mean, if we're still floating, it's by the grace of God. Like I said, this isn't anything new. It's been going on for a long time now. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Aaron's son, Nadab, and Abihu put coals of fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. In this way, they disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire different than he had commanded. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up, and they died before the, Lord's, before the Lord. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, I will display my holiness through those who come near me. I will display my glory before all people. Here it's called a wrong kind of fire. I like the King James Version better. Strange fire. Either way, you get the point. These were young priests. If, if you go back and read, you'll find out that Moses and Aaron had just done it the right way. What did he say? These were the sons, right? The next generation who decided, but we got our own way. They were young. They were trying a new way, a different way. They were trying something other than what the Lord had ordained for them. The result was death. I realize today we live under the tent of grace. But does God change? I thought the Bible said he's the same yesterday and today and forever. I know that we love to live in the New Testament and act like the Old Testament never existed because we've all experienced some form of legalism in our life. But come on, that doesn't negate the, the rest of the Bible. Has he not commanded that we be in the world but not of it? And unfortunately, in my East Texas humor gets the best of me here because if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, usually it's a duck. That's the truth. If we look like the world in methods and models, and we've talked about this, if we look like the world in methods and models, can we seriously think we're projecting Jesus? If you run your church like a business, do you really think it's hard stretch while we all think the churches compete? Do businesses compete? All of us would say yes. All of us are thankful that they do because we get the best deals because of it, right? That's how capitalism works. We apply those same models to church because we see the success of them in the world. And when we do so, we wonder why we look like the world. We wonder why people think, yeah, every church in town competes. They're all, everybody feels like they're in competition with each other. If you ask a pastor, they'll tell you they never like that. Then why does it look like that? Because we've applied worldly principles and practices into our churches. It just does because we... We, we, are, we are natural. We look at the world and we go, okay, I see the same practices in the, in the world. I see the church in the same practices. So it must be this way. Do you think, that, I mean, come on. Is it any wonder why the word hypocrite is synonymous with Christianity? We say we're not of this world, but we sure do look like a part of it. We do one thing, we say another. You ever taken a minute to glance back over the years of the church and see all the mood, mood swings she's gone through? I, I haven't been saved forever, and, and I definitely didn't experience a lot of the church. I, I experienced church in the 90s, church in the 2000s. There's some differences. There's some differences. I didn't experience the church that was really staunch in legalism, but I've heard all the stories. But I look back at the mood swings. When Jesus was too graceful, we shaved his beard. We put a suit and tie on him. We made him into a staunch legalistic businessman who cared more about what you did. That's the church you went to where the pastor said, man, you better get right. You better do this or God's not, man, God's going to come down on you like he never taught love a day in his life. The only love you could get is the love you earned. And that's not, that's not God at all. And just as we started to come out of that, church marketing took another look at the world, decided that Jesus needed to be cool and appeal to more people. We've been legalistic for too long, so we need to go to the other side of that spectrum. So the beard's become popular again. We've thrown in a pair of tight jeans, and Jesus is now leading the hipster movement in the church because he's got to be cool. 
We need him to appeal. We need to be more optimistic about everything. We don't need to confront so much because if we confront, we're never going to get them. That's like telling you, like, listen, by the way, Jesus used the word, Jesus used fishers of men when he described evangelism. There's a hook, and I don't care what you tell people, when they grab that hook in the mouth, that thing's going to hurt. And if you try to lie and say, it's not, well, there's not really a hook, you're a liar. And you've led someone into the, to the kingdom of God under a lie, under a false pretense. And you think something good's going to come by that? I love Peter's way of preaching in the book of Acts. When he goes and stands before the Pharisees, you know who you are? You who murdered the Son of God. That's harsh words. Called them murderers. You know who you are? Yeah, you're the murderer. Murder my friend. The Son of God. We don't preach that kind of stuff. But with every brushstroke that we paint Jesus, we keep sprinkling incense in a way that shouldn't be. Strange fires become the only fire that many of us know. Even so, we still know that we've yet to see the glory of God. We, kind of, we just know it, right? Something inside of us kind of testifies that we've yet to see how great God can do. So we kind of all sit, right, with great expectation. We're looking for the next revival. We're looking for the next meeting. We're, because we know we're, there's something in us that, that knows there's just not enough lights. There's not enough smoke. There's not enough music to convince us otherwise. We gather together and we're hungry and we're thirsty. But you ever know we're not really all that satisfied? We just keep hunger, we just this, this constant hunger and this constant thirst. But Jesus says that his would we'd be satisfied. Because we're spiritually bankrupt. We don't. We're not practicing what we saw in the book of Acts. We're scared to. We know it will offend people. We would have to acknowledge when at times, by the way, we'd have to acknowledge when we're lack of the Holy Spirit. We are not seeing it. We must address this as a serious issue. We're too optimistic for that. We just got to keep going what we're doing. Yeah, that's right, because if we just keep doing the same thing over and over, we always get the, the result we're looking for, right? No, that's why we're here, guys. That's why Mosaic exists, because I've already seen it. The reason we're not like every other church is not for the sake of being different, is because if we just be like every other church, we're going to get what every other church is. And by the way, I don't know if you saw our country, our political pundits right now, but we're not like exactly influencing the world. And if we keep doing church the same way we're doing, we're going to keep getting the same thing. Can't be that way. A.W. Tozer said, if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop. And everybody would know the difference. He says, it is now common practice in most evangelical churches to offer the people, especially the young people, a maximum of entertainment and a minimum of serious instruction. It is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. One can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with him, for they must be wooed to meeting with a stick of striped candy in the form of religious movies, games, and refreshments. Some of us know that's true. Aidan Wilson Tozer died in 1963. Shows you how old that is. But his words have become literal gold to anybody who's read them. Do you think it might be true that we read his words and never think they apply to us? He was saying this of his day. How much more do we see this in ours? Maybe we mentally picture him as an old man, gray-haired, out of date. If so, then maybe the words of Francis Chan will speak to you. He's today. He's still alive. Do you really see the supernatural power at work when believers gather together in what we call the church today, he's asked? 
Isn't it the same Holy Spirit that's seen in the book of Acts that's supposed to be available to us today? I love how he poses that question. Like, aren't we supposed to see what we saw then? How come we don't? How come nobody's asking why we don't? Well, I know why, because you get beat up when you ask. Not here. No matter what's said to us, we refuse to believe how palsy the church has become. Our desire to be optimistic and positive when things seem so grim is misleading to me. Every time we say we function in the power of the Holy Spirit without there being any sign of the Holy Spirit, it's hypocritical. Manipulating emotion through lights, music, smoke, atmosphere doesn't make us closer to God. It moves us farther away. The longer we fail to acknowledge how far the chasm has grown between us and God, the longer we stay spiritually numb to the things of the Holy Spirit. And this isn't new. Amos chapter 5. If you ever wanted to outline something that sounds like today, go read the message. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 25. Listen to this. Tell me this doesn't sound like today. God says through the prophet Amos, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and your conventions. Message. I want nothing to do with your religious projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. I love this. this is my favorite one. This is the question I ask in my heart all the time. When was the last time you sang to me? Tell me that ain't a scripture for us today. What are we doing? I truly believe that what we think we're doing is right. I don't, I don't think these people are like, I'm going to lead these people in a bad way. I think, what we, I think we think we're doing right. And I think this generation of leaders, I think a lot of them are just blinded. They're kind of like behind the illusion. And popularity has kind of, kind of led them into it. And no one's innocent by all this, man. By all appearance... Come on, some of the stuff we've seen the church be able to do and the functions of these big churches that can do so much with their money and so much with the atmosphere, come on, it's beautifully overwhelming. If you've been to a concert, don't lie, you've been like shock and awed. I mean, come on. Some of it's soulfully charming, massively successful, and who can blame them? We validated and supported their efforts by throwing fame and fortune at them. Does God work in their services? Of course he does. God's grace is bigger than our foolishness. It's those familiar words, you know, for God so loved that makes him look past our ignorance, that makes him work where we would think, how does like anybody get saved there? That is like the worst place. How does anybody get saved? Because God's grace, because he's bigger than us. Because God's desire to have us is bigger than all our junk. God draws us. It's never been our works. It's never been our gifts or anything else. It's always been God and God alone. So what do we do? What should we be looking for? Let me first address that this isn't an issue with sound. This isn't about music. All right? This is entirely a heart issue. It's always been a heart issue. Jesus addressed it like this in Matthew 15, 8. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He gets it in the song. He gets that they're singing the right words. He don't care what you sing. You can get up here and you can sing all the right words this morning, but if your heart isn't right with the Lord, God sees that stuff. He don't care what your lips say. He cares what's going on right here. But we can look to the scriptures for guidelines. 
You remember the story of the cart and the Ark of the Covenant? David, uh, through a lot of wisdom, decided it was great stewardship to move the Ark back to Jerusalem. It was smart to do that. We want God to come back to our city. That's smart. He decides he's going to take the Ark of the Covenant, that which is like supposed to be like the Holy Spirit, the most omnipotent presence of God. You touch that thing, you die kind of thing. I'm going to stick that thing on the cart by a couple of dumb animals and send this thing back to Jerusalem. And let's be honest, it appears intelligence on the surface. Come on, man. If I ask you to pick up something that's gold, that's heavy as that thing is, all right, you, I need it picked up and moved from one place to the next. And we want as little hands-on as much as possible because this thing is scary, right? It's smart. I mean, let's just stick it on the cart and take it back. It'll get back there a whole lot faster. It takes less manpower. We can get it back. It seems smart on the outside. But this isn't how God's moved. All right? Remember, the ark has holes on the side of it because there's supposed to be poles in it. And it's supposed to be carried by men. Right? God's presence will never be outsourced off the shoulders of men. Make no mistake about it. I don't, not, I, it, it even, even when it seems like good stewardship, God's presence will not be outsourced off. Don't believe me? Ask the man Uzzah who carelessly and irreverently reached forward to steady the ark as it was about to fall off the cart. The ark had sat in Uzzah's house for so long it just became another piece of furniture. He took God for granted. Hello, that's our church kids if we're not careful, guys. He took God for granted. He saw it as just another piece of furniture. But let me say this. Didn't David do the same thing when he stuck the ark of God, the very presence of God, and he moved it just like it was another piece of furniture? I'm just going to send the moving company out to get it. Well, David, I think God Almighty requires a little bit more than that. I think if he was your friend, you'd come yourself. When our leaders treat the move of God with such passing irreverence, it's no wonder that people follow in their footsteps. The result always leads to spiritual impotence, or worse, it leads to death. King David was stopped in his tracks when Uzzah died. I mean, when Uzzah died, he like changed the whole program. He stopped right there and said, oh my gosh, we've got to do something. Can I tell you, I don't know any, too many pastors today that would ever have done the same. When pastors lose people today or somebody comes back or spiritually dies in their church, they're like, well, that's just one. We've got to keep going for the sake of the many. But I love David's heart. David's like, one is too many. If I lose one, think about the grief there. If I lose one person along this journey of bringing God back, then it was not worth it. And it caused David to go back and look at what it takes to get the ark back God's way. David had to go back and research a way that he had never seen. Think, hear, hear me out. He had never seen it or experienced. Leviticus is so long ago. When the ark of God is created, it's so far long ago, he has no idea. They, they had not seen any Levitical priests. They, I mean, they had an idea, but the, it, the culture had changed over the years and had gotten so far away from how God intended it. And David had to go back and research. He had to go back and read, how do we do this? How do we return God 
back to how do we bring God back to Jerusalem where God is with us again? How do we how do we do this? How do we get ourselves right? And there, there, if you go back and look in in, in uh, First Chronicles chapter fifteen, there, there there begins to be a process that's outlined that we see David begin, and it starts first. If we're going to move with God, we have to prepare for such a task. In 1 Chronicles 15, chapter 1, he says, David now built several buildings for himself in the city of David. He also prepared a place for the ark and set up a special tent. So David was building, he was already busy building all these tents or or building all these buildings for himself and and for the kingdom. And he's busy being an, an engineer, an architect, and doing the things and creating structure and infrastructure. But you know what? He's got a special place put aside for the ark of God. He was going to be prepared for this event. So he made sure that this place was going to be the right place. It was going to be ready for the occasion. He was going to gather all the priests together, get them ready. God's ordained anointed leaders, right? Get them ready for the move of God's presence. And the next thing he begins to do is he orders them to consecrate themselves, which be the next part of the process, which is for us to be pure, purifying ourselves before the Lord. 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2. Then he commanded, no one except the Levites may carry the ark of God. This is what happens when you go back. The Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to serve him forever. See why Uzzah died now? God has a way. When we follow God's way, you, you get to walk with God. If you don't follow God's way, you won't walk with God. 1 Chronicles 15, 12. You are the leaders of the Levite family. You must purify yourselves and all your fellow Levites so that you can bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared. So I've prepared a place. I have a special place set up. I am, I am going to prepare for this move of God the best I can. And it starts by first purifying myself. Have we done this? Can we say that we're pure in heart when we approach God's presence? Have we allowed the things of the world to corrupt us? When people look at us, do they see Christly attributes or do they see the stains of the world? Have we really become set apart? Are we holy as He is holy? Let's not confuse ourselves with the idea of spiritual perfection, okay? Because God's grace covers us as we approach the idea of purity. However, I believe that when our heart desires to be right before God, despite our failure to be at times, God sees this and ultimately knows our intentions. Remember, God sees the heart. He knows if, God, I am seeking purity. I am looking for these things to be pure. I want to guard my eyes. I want to guard. I want to, I want to be a person set apart, a royal priesthood, God. That's my heart's intention. How will he know that? Because hopefully if you're a disciple of Christ, you're already praying. Because I don't see how that doesn't happen, man. How can you be a disciple of God or be the image of God if you don't talk to God? The problem isn't with our lips. It's with our heart, man. It's our heart set apart. And can I tell you, man, once we prepare and begin the preparation, once we begin to purify ourselves and be right before the Lord, right, the next thing we have to do is start to worship God. And that doesn't mean necessarily in song. It's in all our life. Worship is how we talk to someone else. When I, when I talk to you, man, I, I, how I worship the Lord is not by bringing up Jesus every five seconds in the conversation. That's awesome. But it's not necessarily how I do it. You know how I do it? By just loving on you. By loving you, accepting you just as you are, and not bringing judgment upon you. The funny thing to me, if you read the Bible, you never see Jesus casting judgment on anybody except maybe the Pharisees. People who say one thing but are another. 
God will beat you up on stuff like that. That's just how he, he's not a big hypocrite fan. But more often than not, when you see Jesus facing people with some real struggle in real life, he never comes in judgment. I mean, it's usually he's like really nice. I mean, the, the woman, he says, is there anybody left to accuse you? Yeah, neither do I. Go sin no more. No lecture. Whoa. Don't lie. You parents be like, I'm about to tell you. I'm about to lead you back to some Jesus. That's crazy. She was caught in adultery in that moment. She's like beat up and bruised by the hands of these men, right? They're about to cast some stones and kill this lady. I mean, there's no denying that what she had done wrong or that she's living a wrong life. I mean, he says, go and sin no more. Go. No lecture. Be Jesus. Be Jesus. Worship God. 1 Chronicles 15, 16, David also ordered the Levite leaders to appoint a choir of Levites who were singers and musicians to sing joyful songs to the accompaniment of harps, lyres, and cymbals. Open your mouth and sing. Open your mouth and praise the one true God. God loves music. Just so you know, God loves worship. And it's great importance for with our mouths, we're going to lead people into the praise of our God. The worship of the living God will breathe life not only into the lives of our people, but it will be the trumpet sound to the approaching of God. Come on, can you imagine being in Jerusalem, right? David has got this whole procession, and you can go back and read it. David is out front of this procession, making sure it's happening. They're literally like sacrificing a lamb, and it's blood all up. By the way, the road to the glory of God is always covered in blood. All right? And so they they, they sacrificing a lamb every so many feet, and they're walking in the blood all the way up to Jerusalem. They've got this huge choir, and they're banging and everything. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem, having no clue that day what's happening or what's on David's itinerary? Because usually common people don't know what the king's doing. He just does what he wants to do. But you know what you can hear? Man, do you hear all that? Somebody's like making some noise. Man, I can hear them like two miles out. What's coming? And it creates interest. It creates all of a sudden, what's going on? What's the commotion? I don't know, man. Somebody's like, they're like playing music like crazy and they're singing and sounds like a festival's coming or the carnival's coming. I don't know what, man. Something's going on. Well, it's the ark procession. The glory of the God making its way back to the, his people. And it's heard through the worship. Jericho, the walls came down through the worship. God is always preceded with worship. You just go look that up. I mean, come on. It's, you would hear the arrival of the Lord long before you would see it. Let me say it again. You would hear the arrival of the Lord long before you see it. Can that be said of our churches? Do we hear the praise of our churches, or do we hear them praise themselves? Can they hear us? This kind of worship not only wakes people up, but it sets things right. Why? Because it shouts before the rest of the world that the Lord is here physically and tangibly. This produces godly fear that leads to spiritual wisdom. The fruit of godly fear is always godly wisdom. The wisdom of God is real. He is true and he is just. The, the triumphant sound of the worshiper always is God is here. God is here. Every time we worship, that's what we're saying to this world. God is here. God is here. 
Lastly, and maybe the most important, we must appoint watchmen. We have to, we have to guard our hearts. We need to be watchmen. First Chronicles 15, again, like I said, the whole chapter, if you go look at it, this is the whole procession that took the ark back to Jerusalem. It says, Berechiah and Elkanah were chosen to guard the ark. By the way, did you just see that Uzzah touched it? Uh, who else is going to take it? How many of you? I dare you to touch it. I mean, come on, like that, that I, I mean, like as a kid, I don't, I mean, I don't know, but like once I saw that happen, I'm like, I don't, I'm good. Like, I would think this is a joke job, like seriously, like, hey, I'm going to get you two to be guards. For real? They touched it and they died. I don't think nobody's going to worry about it, David. Like, I think if you're going to worry about anything, you better worry about any bodies that are laying down as we keep driving this thing. If somebody trips into this thing, they're dead. But this is part of the process. God's move is not without interruption at times. From the outside walls, we face a spiritual enemy, the devil, and all that are like him. By the way, even Jesus looked at some people and said, you're of your father, the devil. You know those people. We all know some of those people. From within the walls, sin lurks about. It's subtle and it's quiet. Both are spiritual hindrances that keep us from experiencing the movement of God. Listen, if it ain't the things outside the wall that keep us distracted from, from listening to God and hearing God, it's the things inside the walls. A watchman can see both ways. For far too long, I think the watchmen have looked outside the walls and just tried to be ignorant to what's in the walls. Today, more than any other day, we need watchmen. In other words, we need prophets and people of accountability. This is the reason I entered into ministry so late in life. God had given me a vision that his watchmen were sleeping. And, and I'm going to tell you guys, they're doing a lot more than sleeping. I, I honestly used to tell, well, a lot of people, and I, I haven't had to say it in a long time, but when I'm around a lot of pastors, I end up saying it like, yeah, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be the guy behind the pulpit. I'm a guy who sits in the pew. I'm only in the pulpit because God's men in the pulpit are failing. And I, t I tell pastors that they don't like that, you know. Doesn't make you friends. There's, but there's too many guys in the pulpit failing. They live two double lives. They, 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 they are caught up and consumed with the, con with, with the way the church is today. And they're lost in it. I feel bad for them. I feel bad for them. That's the reason I entered into ministry so late. I think it was a fear thing. I think God was saying, hey, I want you to experience the pew because here's the thing. One day I'm going to place you in this position and I want you to fight for those that are in the pew. So when, if you don't know by now, and, and some of you do know this about me, like if you're a pastor, ask, I should bring Pastor Robert in and let y'all just like let him testify of this. Uh, if you're a pastor and you complain about your people, you are not my friend probably. It's not going to happen. We exist as pastors. If God has truly called us as pastors, we exist to protect that which God has given us, not to complain about it. Not to be cynical or anything else about it. This is what God had called me. Who is going to warn God's people? Where are really God's men and great women of old? Where are the generations? David Wilkerson's. Any of y'all know who that guy is? Phenomenal prophet of the Lord. He's long since passed on now, but who, who, who got, sits in that guy's shoes? Who becomes the great prophet who, who, by the way, started out witnessing to the gangs in New York? Literally, if you haven't read The Cross and the Switchblade, that's his first book. 
And it was about how he saved the guy who had pulled a switchblade out on him and was going to kill him. <laughs> Started a big church up in New York. Wilkerson, phenomenal guy to read about. Where are this generation's Blanche Britain? I know y'all don't know that name. But a long time ago in the 30s and 40s, she planted over 40 churches. She would raise up a pastor in that church and, and then go plant another one. She would start a church, stay there eight or nine months, raise up a pastor inside the church to take over the small congregation, and then run to another state and go do another one. By the way, her churches, some of her churches are still around today. Listen, because if the men can't do it, I, I know that God will seek out women that will. Where are God's watchmen? Where are the men and women of God that are more concerned with God than their own life? Ezekiel 3, 17 and 33 and 7, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them a warning from me. Where are the warnings today? How come we don't hear them? Where are the voices of the Lord where we can go, man, this is God. Are we so entertained that we're missing out on what God wants for us? It's possible. Where's our passion at times? Where's our fire? I eat, sleep, drink this stuff, not because I want to preach and want to be a pastor. Ask my wife. That was the farthest thing from me. I didn't, want, I, didn't, wouldn't, I didn't grow up my whole life going, man, can't wait. This is the burden of my life. Uh-uh. It wasn't. I mean, it took me forever to really get the courage to come out and do it. I didn't want to do it. But there's a fire. It's like I'm Jeremiah. I feel like it's a fire shut up in my bones. How can I say anything? I have to. I feel like people are being mistreated. People are being misled. Somebody needs to stand up. I really think that some of the hardest things I went through in my life and being sometimes the outcast and the kid who got into trouble and strong-willed and was always like the worst kid in school is like, help me today be the guy who could stand up when all else fails. And I, I look back and I thank the Lord for my young life while it wasn't very enjoyable and very painful. Uh, I look back at my life and I'm, I'm thankful that the Lord carried me through those things because I think you prepared me for this moment. I truly do. And what's that moment for you? Isaiah 21.8 says, And the lookout shouted, Day after day, my Lord, I stand on the watchtower. Every night I stay at my post. Who's going to be found standing when the Lord returns? Who's going to notice? You ever, you ever notice in the Christmas story that the three wise men, as we call them, they're magi, or uh, um, they think they were Persian uh, astronomers, is what they believe they were, who could look at the signs and who had read Old Testament uh, scripture and put the two together that this was the coming of the Christ. But not one Pharisee, Sadducee, or any other scribe of God could see the sign. Think about that for a second. Born your whole life studying the scripture, missed the sign from heaven and from God that the Son of God is being born. Don't tell me you can't sit in church your whole life and miss the great thing God is about to do. I don't want to be found guilty of, mis of memorizing knowledge without the wisdom to allow it to manifest in my life. I don't want to be like the Pharisees, able to give you an answer for where Christ is to be born without also recognizing that the single greatest moment in history is about to take place. They knew it. Where is he to be born? They knew it was supposed to be Bethlehem. Nobody's looking. 
Nobody's looking. So when he came, did they believe him? No. He stood in their face. The glory of God stood in the face of men who dedicated their lives to God, and they could not recognize him. His words did not resound in their heart. Don't tell me you can't be fooled. God's watchmen must stand watch. They must not only see the approaching of the enemy, but also the Lord. Every night I stay at my post, it says. Every night I am supposed to be watching. Every night I'm supposed to be listening intently to what the Lord might say. Every night I'm supposed to be keeping guard. We're to be waiting upon the Lord. And this is a stern approach for a man or woman to be at their best. This isn't a game. God is coming back in all His glory. And who is going to notice Where are the hearts that burn for his arrival? Or even just revival? This is the procession that moves God from one place to another. It's an old way, I know. I know. But it's right. And we see it work through David. We, we prepare ourselves. We are the temple of God. I'm going to tell you, I'm persuaded. I was talking last night to my parents. I'm persuaded that, come on. This building could pass away tomorrow and every church could be gone. You know, there'd still be the church. It's a joke. Like I saw somebody complain about it. Like, oh, man, you don't need to ever skip a day of church in your life. Skip a day of church. I am the church. I can't skip being myself. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's why I don't get bent if a bunch, if it, some days we're like packed full in here. It's like, wow. And then some days not so much. Are we any less saved? Oh, my gosh. Why do we have to guilt trip everybody? Why is that like the only thing the church understands? You better guilt trip them. And we won't say that because that's not godly. Better guilt trip them, though. We need to write articles about how they should be there every week. Man, and wonder, hello, business model, business methods. It's like we ran out of grace. Well, Jesus is the one with the grace. I know. I'm going to go hang around that guy. We prepare ourselves, get ourselves right, right? And, and part of that preparation, right, right off the bat, purifying our hearts, making sure that we're right before the Lord, right? And then when we are, right, we begin to, we can't be shy anymore. We need to open our mouth, right? Begin to declare the works of the Lord in our life, right? Have a shout, man. I love my wife, man. When she gets to clean or gets to doing something, she headphones on or she turns something up like our little Bluetooth speaker up loud as can be, and she will sing like nobody's in the room while she's back doing anything else, and she is going to sing as loud as she can, and she's going to praise and worship, and she will have moments. She'll tell you. She'll have moments where she'll just like vacuuming and crying. God, it's so good. <laughs> I mean, like, and she'll just have these moments, man. Right? She opens her mouth. She worships the Lord. Can you tell you, she's taught my kids to do that. And here's the thing is, don't take that for granted. That's why you need the watchman mentality. Because, man, the thief does come to kill, steal, and destroy. I know that. And make no mistake, you know what he wants more than anything? He just wants your joy. Right? You know that entertainment is a substitution for it, right? The more you entertain yourself, the more you lack God's joy, usually. You should be able to be fine by yourself. You should be able to be fine between you and the Lord. I'm not saying never watch football, never watch anything that's entertaining. What I'm saying is that if, that's, if you can't be still long enough to just enjoy the Lord, you might have some issues with your joy. 
God will rob you of joy and teach you and train you that joy is something else. You can't let the devil do that kind of stuff. We have to keep guard. Have to be on the wall, looking out for that which comes to rob us of our relationship with God Almighty. If we don't, people will perish. The same people Christ died for. How will we be able to stand before a holy God and account for the things we failed to do? That's the things I think about a lot. How do we account? But when I stand before him, did I say I gave it all? If I say that, will my life represent it? Ain't going to be no line before the Lord. Can you? And you even try to think about, like, you might actually try to say something that ain't true right standing before him. You know, heaven and hell is presented before you, and you about to lie. I think the decision is made. God's lie to leave us nowhere to hide. It's time to return to the old ways. Does that mean like the old music, the old way of doing No, no, no. What it means is the heart way. Where we care more about God's way than we, about any other way. That's why we're like researching the book of Acts. That's why we're like challenging ourselves about telling no one the whole Matthew chapter 6. That's why we're looking towards the prophet again. Nobody wants to have Jeremiah around who's saying gloom and doom and destruction over your life. But by gosh, if he's called and appointed by God and he's going he's gonna to keep me from being, uh, by the way, his gloom and doom was that Babylon was coming and they were going to enslave all the people of Israel. So his weeping was over the fact that this nation, if you don't get your eyes together, you're going to be the slaves of other people. And so he weeped over that. Can I tell you, it's the same pro- prophetic word that's out today. It's the same prophet today that's telling you, that even, even me right now, that if we don't get this right and we don't understand what it is to return and we don't, we don't take the process of God seriously and purify ourselves and take the steps that's needed to worship and guard our hearts, I'm telling you, we're going to be the slaves of the world and we will be captive I mean right now I believe like the world has us captive because it has us we're we're starstruck by the technology and we're starstruck by all the things that we can see and do now Facebook has us starstruck light, smoke, atmosphere it has us starstruck I mean, I, I almost, I had pulled up a bunch of images and was going to show you today. I, I didn't load it to the computer, but I was going to show you like 10 slides of different concert events and was going to have you pick out which ones were the Christian ones and which one were the worldly ones. I had my wife go through them. Uh, she didn't get 100, guys. You tell me. I mean, if you can't tell the difference between what the world looks like and what the church looks like, Who's the one in the wrong? It ain't the world. The world always does what the world does. We're to be set apart. We're supposed to be different. And I'm going to tell you, as somebody who knows, talked about it this morning, it is so hard. I I told you in confession, really, this morning, I said, you know how bad I really just want to be like all the other churches? Remember in 1 Samuel when he says, give us a king so that we might be like all the other nations? Oh, you don't think I don't see all the pictures of these churches who look all so happy because they ain't going to show no bad pictures on Facebook. So they show you these happy ones. You know how they crop them in so it looks like there's like a lot of people there. It's like, there's like 30, but it may look like there's 100. And you're like, I wish I could have a big church like that. Look at all this. Look at their worship. So good. They got it. Man. They play like the one song that they got right, you know, because that's the one they show you on Facebook. Right? Isn't it funny how with the social media day we can present to you the package we want you to see? Doesn't mean it's true. 
just what we showed you. And there's a big concern even in ministry today. There's a lot of talk about that. We don't want to do events like they worry about doing events like on Easter. Like, don't blow up. I mean, listen, they teach this at conferences. Don't do too big of a pageantry on Easter or these big times where everybody comes because when they show up next Sunday and your church is not very good, you don't want to, like, too false advertise yourself. Just a little. Just a little false advertisement. Not a lot. And I'm going to tell you the pressure as a pastor Oh, Lord, I'd love to see a big church. I'd love to see. And I have to challenge my own heart. Why do I want to see those things? Because there's pieces of me, man, that's still stuck where God's going. I've got to pull this out of you, man. Why do you think we're going through the cookbook? I'm not sure it's for you. Some of you be like, I've been knowing this forever, pastor. Well, thank you. I just now caught up. But I'm going to tell you. I think the, this whole thing has been, for me, for sure, it's been a, a heart turn where God's going, I'm going to pull these strings on you, man. You, you say you want the church of the New Testament, so I've got to pull some of the world out of you, man, and it's not going to feel good. I'm going to pull on your heart, your heart strings, and they're going to hurt because there's been things in your heart, Jim, that you wanted that aren't right, that aren't me. You want me. If you want me, just take me. Don't, let's, let's filter out everything else. Let's filter out everything else. And part of this process from even me talking to you in all these sermons, the cookbook series here, is that part for me where God's pulling on my heartstrings going, let's take this side out of you. Right? You think it feels good to admit those things? No. I'd love to tell you, see how free I feel now? No. It hurts. I feel embarrassed to talk about it. But also, I'm also scared to be dishonest. I don't want to hide anything. This, in this way, we can be Christ to each other and be family. In this way, I worship the Lord by telling you that God still works in me. And every day, God is still perfecting me, and I don't have it figured out. But one thing I do know, together, we will get, get through it. Together, we can get through it. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to work our way back towards the, 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 the music now. I'm going to have somebody go grab Joy. Rachel, can you? Oh, okay. Go back and get her. Yeah.